0: So how many of you grew up going to church? Go ahead, raise your hand, grow up going to church, raise your hand, hold it up high, be proud of that, unless you still have your WWJD bracelet on, then slowly lower your hand down. No, I'm kidding. How many of you grew up going to church? How many of you were the coolest kid in Awanas? You were the valedictorian of Sunday school. You were the teacher's pet at your homeschool co-op. How many of you grew up going to church? How many of you were the Ric Flair of Bible Bowl Trivia. You are the 13 time, 13 time, woo, heavyweight champion of Bible Bowl Trivia. How many of you that's you? Okay, growing up in church, you probably hear a lot of the more popular, famous Bible stories. There are some Bible stories that are more popular and known than others. So that would be like Joseph and the coat of many colors. That would be like Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, or my daughter's favorite, the big fish. Okay, every night, whenever I'm tucking my daughter Esther's son in the bed, we want to read our Jesus storybook Bible together. And I ask her, sweetie, what story do you want to read? And she always says the big fish. She's talking about Jonah because Her daddy's a pastor. She knows it was not a whale, it was a big fish. She knows better than that. That's my daughter. I raised her better than that. It is the big fish. But there are certain Bible stories that we're more familiar with than others. And it's the same thing when we come to the Gospel of Mark, in which we're studying in our series called The Simple Gospel. It's got a lot of the Sunday school Bible stories that most of us grew up on. So that would be like Jesus walking on water or Jesus feeding the 5,000, or Jesus calming the storm, or Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood, or Jesus casting out a legion of demons into a herd of pigs which jumped off a cliff and they all, okay, do you remember that one? It's in there. Go read it. Mark chapter 5. We've seen Jesus do amazing things. We've seen Jesus preach and teach and heal, perform miracles. We've seen Jesus do signs and wonders, and most of the Sunday school stories are over. So if you're new neuter- to You can go back and you can listen to all of those on the sermon archives because we're in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and most of the Sunday school Bible stories are already over, which means that today I get to teach you the story that they didn't teach you in Sunday school. I get to teach you the story that they didn't tell you when you were growing up, right? How many of you remember the Bible story where God shows up and kills everybody? You don't remember that one, did you? Yeah, that one didn't make a veggie tail. <laughs> right? You, you, you didn't see this one on TBN. There wasn't on a flannel graph right? And you probably haven't heard your favorite megachurch pastor preach what we're going to preach today. It's the story where God shows up and kills everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And today's the Sunday school story that they didn't tell you in Sunday school. And we're probably going to figure out why. If you have your Bibles, the sermon title today is called Jesus and the wicked tenants. Welcome to redemption. Buckle up. Buttercup, because we are about to study God's word today. Here's what Jesus has to say. We'll read it all up front. We'll make a few observations, and then I want to help you understand this story so then we can apply it to our lives today. It is the parable, the short story of the wicked tenants. Here's what we see. Verse 27, and they. Who's that? That's Jesus along with his disciples. They came into Jerusalem. It's Passover week. It's the last week. It's the final week of Jesus' life. They came in to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, Luke's gospel tells us that he was teaching the gospel. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. He was walking in the temple, and the chief priests, these are the religious leaders, and the scribes and the elders, they came to him, and they said to him, by what authority? Important word. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. We're going to spend a lot of time. I'm talking about that word today. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He's talking about John the Baptist here. Was it from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if We shall say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered, Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus, he says you wanna ask me a question, I'll answer your question if at first you answer my question. This is classic rabbi mind tricks. Jesus is saying, if you answer mine, I'll answer yours, and when you answer the question I have, you'll have the answer to your original question. Answer me. The religious leaders, they gather together, they huddle up, and they try to figure out how they're best gonna answer the question Jesus asks them, and then they say, "Mm, I don't know. And they refuse to give an answer to Jesus, which leads Jesus to tell the parable of the wicked tenants. It's the story that they didn't tell you growing up in Sunday school. It's the wicked tenants. Here's what Jesus says. And he begins to speak to them in parables. That's a short story with a big idea to illustrate a point. Jesus tells them a parable. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and he leased it out to tenants. And he went away into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him. What did they do? They beat him and they sent him away empty handed. And then again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he sent to them another servant and this one they killed and so on with many other servants. You would think the guy would run out of servants by this time, right? hey how many of you want to go see these tenants no thank you they beat them and killed them and he keeps sending all of these different servants and so here's what we're going to see some they beat some they killed and yet he still had one other. he had a beloved son finally he sent them saying they will respect my son but those tenants how many of you know those tenants those tenants here's what they did they said to one another this is the heir Here he is. This is the beloved son, the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him outside of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, and he will destroy them. He's going to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Jesus He asks the religious leaders who grew up in church, have you not read this scripture? Do you not remember this in Sunday school? Have you not read this scripture? Let's think back a little bit. Here's what the scripture says. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This was marvelous in God's eyes. It was the Lord's doing. And they were seeking to arrest him. They didn't like this because they feared the people, but they also perceived that he had told this parable against them. So what did they do? Verse 12, they left him and they walked away. Here's the story. So Jesus, on the last week of his life, he's been doing ministry now for three years For 11 chapters, he's been preaching, teaching, loving people, forgiving the unlovable. He has been manifesting the kingdom of God everywhere he went, helping and serving and blessing and caring for everyone that he came across. For 11 chapters and three years, Jesus has been doing life and ministry, but his ultimate goal was to head to Jerusalem where ultimately he would be arrested, tried, crucified, die, and then resurrect for the forgiveness of our sins. It's that week. It's the last week. It's the final week of Jesus' life. And on the first day, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and they're worshiping and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is what is known as the triumph triumphal entry of Jesus, where they begin to recognize that he is the promised Messiah, the Holy One. And after the triumphal entry, Jesus, he goes back to his friend's house in Bethany. The next morning, he wakes up, and he goes back into the temple on the way there. He's a little hungry. He wants a little snacky snack, so he stops by a tree that has no fruit, and he says, die, curses the tree as a sign of judgment against the religious leaders. He walks into the temple, full on Indiana Jones with A whip flipping over tables, driving out money changers, and there are pigeons flying everywhere. He causes a great commotion, won't let anyone in or out of the temple. Jesus literally flips out on this day. And then afterwards, he leaves. He goes back to Bethany. And in the morning, the next day, today, he walks right back into the temple. And what does he begin doing? He's preaching and he's teaching. Let's just say Jesus got some guts. I mean, Jesus, after flipping the tables, cursing the religious leaders, and killing a tree, the next day he walks right back in the temple as if nothing happened. And he's just preaching and teaching. Now, I want you to understand something. During this time, it's Passover. There would be upwards of 500,000 people who would be gathering in Jerusalem. The temple alone would house about 250,000 people. It's 15 football fields in size. And so it would be not unrealistic to say that there might have been 1,000, maybe 5,000 people listening to the message that Jesus is preaching on this morning. And the people are interested and fascinated. I mean, Jesus is trending on Twitter, right? He is really popular. I mean, he's number one on iTunes. Everybody from Fox News and CNN, they're interviewing him. He's on the radio, and everybody wants to know, what is Jesus going to do next? This guy is insane. What is Jesus going to say next? This guy is crazy. And they're all hanging on every word that Jesus says. And then all of a sudden, here comes the religious leaders bum 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 it's your favorite characters it's the religious leaders and it's not just one of them the whole posse's there it's the chief priests it's the scribes it's the teachers of the law it's the elders of the tradition it's the ruling elders the 70 sanhedrin there's 70 of them that come in the middle of jesus message and they say hey jesus we have to have a word with you they interrupt his sermon And they're like, Jesus, we need to talk. What do you think you're doing? How dare you? You come right back in here. You were just flipping over tables. You were just driving out money changers. And then you walk right back up in here. And you think you could just go ahead and start preaching a sermon like nothing happened? Who gave you the right? Who gives you the authority? Where does your authority come from? It's a question about Jesus's authority. What gives Jesus the right to do the things that he does in our life? And then Jesus, he responds to them By telling them a parable. It's the parable that you didn't hear in the Sunday school class. It's the the wicked tenets. How many of you are familiar with Jesus' parables? You know those short stories that Jesus tells? How many of you are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, let's say, where the son, he leaves home, he makes a mess of his life, and then he comes back home, and what's the father do? He throws his arms wide open, he puts a coat over his son, he has a big party for him, welcome home. That's the parable of the prodigal son. We love that story. What about the parable of the lost sheep where Jesus leaves the 99 to go out and find the one? That one's cute. I really like that one. What about the parable of the good Samaritan? That's the Mr. Rogers Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? That's the Mr. Rogers Jesus parable. Okay, but what about the wicked tenants? It's the one where God shows up and kills everybody. Yeah, you didn't hear that one, right? I mean, it's actually what it says right here. It says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What is he going to do? He will show up, and he will destroy them. Excuse me? It's straight from the lips of Jesus. He will show up, and he will destroy them. That's the parable. You didn't hear this one in Sunday school. (laughs) You didn't hear this one growing up. Whenever I was tucking my daughter in last night, I didn't say, no, baby, instead of the big fish, we're going to read the Wicked Tenants. Okay, <laughs> night, night, love you. <laughs> I didn't say that to her. How many of you are struggling with this right now? You're kind of struggling with this this message. Like, you didn't come here today to hear the sermon about being destroyed, did you? Like, you didn't wake up after a long week of work or bills or kids. You didn't go through a pandemic in 2020, and you were just wrestling with everything, with finances and relationships. You weren't just hoping today that you're like, Lord Jesus, I pray that today when I go to church, I hear the sermon about everybody getting murdered. If you did, we have prayer at the end of the service for you. <laughs> how many of you are a little, a little struggling with this? You're, you're struggling with it a little bit. Okay, good. That's the same place that I was on Monday when I began to prep for this sermon. I was really wrestling and struggling with how we began to apply this to our lives. But the more that I studied it, the more I began to understand it, the more that I realized that it is so incredibly important for people like me and for people like you who grew up in church who know all the stories, and yet we still don't know him. So let me tell you the parable of the wicked tenants. If you're taking notes, pull them out. I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline. We're going to walk through it piece by piece so we can better understand it. The first thing we're going to see is this, the interrogation. Go ahead. I'm giving it to you all up front. So one, two, three, four. The first one is this. It is the interrogation. We're going to see an interrogation. The second thing we're going to see is the illustration. That is the story that Jesus tells. Then we're going to see the interpretation, how we explain this. And then lastly, we're going to see the implications, what this means for our life. We're going to see the interrogation, the illustration, the interpretation. And then lastly, we're going to see the implications. The first thing I want you to notice is in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. It is the interrogation. How does the story start? As Jesus is teaching, what do the religious leaders do? They walk up, to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? They're basically challenging Jesus. They come right up to him in the middle of his message. They interrupt him and they say, Jesus, who gave you the rights to come in here and do these things? By what authority do you do these? Who do you think that you are to come in here and to say and to do and act the way that you're acting? It's a question over authority. See, the religious leaders, they do not like the authority that Jesus has because the more authority Jesus has, the less they're able to control him and the people. And Jesus doesn't fit into the box that the religious leaders have created with all of their religious systems. He does things differently, and they can't control him, and so they resent him, and they are angry at him. This is not a question. When you read it, this is not a question. Notice, as you're looking at verse 28, it doesn't have a question mark. It has a period, because this is a demonstrative statement by the religious leaders. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right? It's a question over authority. And the religious leaders have opposed Jesus' authority all throughout the gospel of Mark. So we see this in Jesus' first miracle in Mark chapter 1. As Jesus goes into the synagogue, he delivers a man who's possessed by a demon. He's preaching a sermon, and they ask this question. Who is this man that teaches with such authority? Because for the religious leaders, their authority did not come from themselves. Their authority came from other people how many people they could quote. So if you're a religious rabbi, it was much like the academics of the day, right? If you want to get your paper cited and get your paper sourced, what do you have to do? You have to quote a whole bunch of other people, and the more people you can quote, the more fancy and smarter you sound. That's the way that the Pharisees would preach. And so their sermons were just filled with notes and footnotes about dead guys, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Gamil said this, and another guy said this, and 1,500 years ago, a guy said this, and here's what the Talmud said, and here's what the Mishnah said, And by the end of it, none of it would actually be any of their words. It was all somebody else's words. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus walks in and he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, what is that? That's authority. He doesn't quote anybody. He quotes himself because Jesus alone has authority. And the religious leaders, they hated this. The other story that we see is in Mark chapter five. When Jesus casts out a demon, they ask this question. They say, who is this man that even the demons obey him? That he has authority over demons. You know why? Because the way that they would cast out demons then was through some magic, crazy hocus pocus where they would remove a piece of the person's skull. They would tie a a peacock feather around their head. They would take feces and shove it up their nose. That's how they would cast out demons. And Jesus doesn't do that. Here's what Jesus does. You, gone, now. Let's do it. Over. Because he has authority not only to teach and preach, but he has authority over the demonic and then we see in Mark chapter 2, as Jesus, he's hanging out in the house, they, they lower a paralytic man down. And what does Jesus say? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they freak out, and they say this. They say, only God has the authority to be able to forgive sins. Who do you think you are, God? And Jesus is like, you're getting closer. <laughs> Finally, you're starting to see what I'm talking about. They say you don't have the right to forgive sins. It says they actually rent their clothes, that they tore their clothes. They called Jesus a blasphemer, that you a mere man claim to have the same authority as God. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, "Just so you know that I have authority, not only am I going to forgive this man's sins, but just to make you a little bit more mad, hey, pick up your mat walk and go home." He not only forgives him, but he heals him because he has authority to do those things. And after that, it says, "Then they left." And they begin to plot how they could kill him. All the way from back in Mark chapter 2. Because the entire time, they have rejected, they have resisted, and they have opposed Jesus' authority. And so here we see in Mark chapter 11, what's it about? It's about them rejecting the authority that Jesus has over their life. And so they say, who gave you the right to do these things? Which leads Jesus to ask them a question. I'll answer you if you answer me. Let's talk about John the Baptist. You're like, wait, what? What does John the Baptist have to do with any of these things? Okay, let's go back. Let's talk about John the Baptist. We met him in Mark chapter one. And Jesus says, what ministry did John have? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Now, this creates a whole new paradigm for the religious leaders. The same way that Jesus flipped the tables in the temple, now he's flipping the tables on the conversation. Because if they say that John the Baptist was from heaven, well, they hated John because they couldn't control him either. And they hated him and they opposed him and they resisted him and they hated everything about his ministry. And if they say, oh, his authority came from heaven, then what's going to happen? Well, then they're going to be hypocrites and they're caught in their own trap. Because then why did not you listen to John the Baptist? What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. What did John the Baptist say in Mark one twenty one? He says, after me comes another that I am not even worthy to bend down and tie his sandals. John the Baptist prophesied about me, and you didn't listen to him. And then their whole ruse would be up. But if they say for man, well, John the Baptist, he's a folklore. Like he is folk legend. He is incredible. He is a hero to the eyes of the people. And if they say he's for man, then all of a sudden all of the people, the great crowd that's gathered around him, what's going to happen? Well, they're all going to hate him. They're going to lose their power, influence, and their control either. And so they're in quite a predicament. They came to accuse Jesus, and now they're on the withdrawal. What are we going to do? What are we going to say? So they get together in a nice little huddle. Huddle up, huddle up, come on, come on, come on, huddle up, everybody. And they say, okay, what are we going to do here? I don't know. He got us. Yeah, I know. I didn't think he was that smart. Yeah, he's a lot smarter than we think he is. Okay, what are we going to do? I know. Let's just plead the fifth. We don't know. (laughs) We don't know. Now, they're not really answering the question with the truth. They're still trying to protect themselves. But I want you to notice something, that this is not a question. They're not asking a question because they want an answer. No. They're asking this because they want to attack. They're not asking this because they're trying to figure out what the truth is. They don't want to let things like truth get in the way of what they believe. (laughs) That's all they're doing. This is not a question. No, 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 no. This is an interrogation. They are interrogating Jesus. They are interrupting him and trying to get him to lose his reputation with others. I want you to know something. There is a difference between having questions and questioning. Is it okay to have questions about God? Absolutely. Is it okay for you to have questions about faith, the Bible? Is it okay for you to have questions about existence and purpose? Is it okay for you to have questions when it comes to the things of the Lord? Absolutely. It's actually welcome for you to have questions. God is big enough for your questions. You can come to God and you can ask questions. You can come to the church and you can ask questions. You can join a small group and you can ask questions. There is nothing wrong with having questions. Questions are actually encouraged. We would love to be able to hang out and answer some of your questions, but they're not asking a question. How do you think the conversation would have gone if the religious leaders would have came up to him and said, okay, Jesus, we have some questions. We've seen you preach and teach. We know you have authority. We've seen you cast out demons. That was incredible. We know you have authority. We've seen you walk on water, calm the storm. We have seen you do wonderful things. And we even know about the coming promise of the Messiah and God. We're just really struggling with this. Can you help us understand it? Do you know what Jesus would have done? Absolutely. I've been waiting three years for you to ask me this question. Come on, let's go talk about it. And he probably would have walked away, sat down, and had a conversation with him. But they weren't asking a question they were questioning him and that's where a lot of people in life are at is a lot of people don't truly have questions about god a lot of people are truly just questioning him because they resent him because they're angry at him and because they don't want to submit under his authority for their life most people don't just have questions about god A lot of people get to a place where their hearts are so hardened towards him that they begin to interrogate him. It's possible for us to end up at the same place. It's possible for us to get to the same moment. I remember talking with a friend of mine before before we planted the church, and I was sitting down, and I was asking him, hey, what would it take for you to become a Christian? What would it take for you to give your life to the Lord? And he said, here's what I would do. If God would show up in front of me and if God would say, "Here I am, I am God," believe in me, then then I would believe in Him. And I looked at Him and said, "No, you wouldn't." He said, "Well, what do you mean? Of course I would." I said, "No, you wouldn't, because God has already become a man, entered into human history, and He sat down with us. And even the people who were face to face with Him still rejected Him." And even the people who are face-to-face with him still opposed him and questioned him and interrogated him. And ultimately, they murdered him. So you still wouldn't do it. Let's just be honest with ourselves that we have all of the evidence of love and grace and God's goodness all around us. That we have people in our lives who have given us opportunities and chances that there are moments where our conscience tells us that God is good and God is true and that God is real. And for many people, the only reason they don't believe in him is because they don't want to. That's where the religious leaders are at. They're trapped. And they don't give an answer because they don't want to. And they don't want to let things like truth get in the way of what they believe. You have to be honest with yourself. If you're here today, I want you to know God's big enough for your questions. But I also want you to know that you need to get honest with yourself. Is the only reason why you're not a Christian and following Jesus and surrendering to him and his will is because you don't want to surrender your authority to anybody else but yourself. Some people don't believe in God primarily because they don't want to. That's where the religious leaders are at. And that's where some of us find ourselves today. Which leads us to point number two the parable of the wicked tenants. I'll read it all, and I want to remind you before we get started with this this is from the lips of Jesus, the most loving, gracious, kind, compassionate person who has ever walked the face of the planet. And yet, what he's going to say here is some very hard words. Because here's what has to happen. Soft words make soft hearts, or soft words, rather, make hard hearts. But sometimes hard words are what it takes to soften the heart. Here's what the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And so you need to get honest, and as you read these words of Jesus, I want you to open your heart up to receive the truth of what he's about to say. Because if you get this, it could change everything in your life. But if you resist this, then your heart will be harder when you walk out these doors than you were the moment you walked in. Here's the words of Jesus. A man plants at a vineyard. And he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went away to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from him some fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another servant. They struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another servant, and him they killed. And so on with many others, some they beat, some they killed, and yet he still had one other. He had a beloved son. And the Greek would say an only son an only begotten son, a beloved son, more than anything else. Finally, he sent them saying, surely they will respect my son, but those tenants, they said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner do? What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the this is the story that they didn't tell you in Sunday school. So basically, here's the plot. There's a man who owns a vineyard. He leases it out to tenants to take care of, to steward, and then to send back a little bit of the fruits for for payments. And the tenants take care of it for a while, and then eventually they decide, yeah, we're not going to pay anymore. So they stop paying. And then here's what the owner does. He sends a servant. He sends another servant. Some they beat. Some they killed. After a while, he's like, well, I'm just going to send my son. Surely they'll respect him. And then the son goes. And then what do they do to the son? They kill him, take him, throw him outside of the vineyard. What then is the owner of the vineyard going to do after learning that his beloved son has been murdered? Well, the father's going to show up and kill and destroy everyone. The end. This is the story they didn't tell you in Sunday school. So here's what I want to do. I want to help us all be able to understand this just a little bit better. One of the ways that you interpret parables is you have to ask this question. Who are the characters in the story? Now, when you read it on the surface, let's just be honest. It doesn't take a rocket surgeon to be able to interpret this, does it? No, 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 no. We, we, we get it. Who is the owner? It has to be God, right? Right? And, and, and who are the tenants? That's us. And the vineyard represents our life. The vineyard represents the world that we live in. The vineyard represents everything that is around us. That's what the vineyard represents. In Genesis, it tells us that God made the heavens and the earth, and then he gave mankind dominion over the earth. You know what that word gave? That's a gift. He trusts us to steward the life that he has given to us. God is the owner. We are the recipients of God's grace and his goodness and the vineyard of the life that we live in. This, this world is God's vineyard, and we are the tenants. The life that you live is God's vineyard, and we are the tenants. And I want you to understand something. How good is God? How good is God that he is trusting with us his creation? How good is God that he is blessing you with the life that you have? I want you to understand that God is so gracious. God is so kind. God is so generous that he shares with us everything in this world. He says it's yours. Go ahead. Enjoy it. Take care of it. All that I ask is that you give back to me what already belongs to me. That's life. God is so gracious, so good, so kind. He has blessed us with so much. This is theologically what is known as common grace. That it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non Christian, we are all recipients of the immutable, invisible attributes of God that are all around us in this world. That as a Christian or non Christian, you have finances, you have a car, you have a house, you have kids, you have a wife or a husband, you have a spouse, you have all of these different things. College is a gift, your GPA, whether you study or not, praise the Lord, it is still a gift. Work harder. All of these things, it is a gift to steward and to share because God. is so gracious and generous towards us but so often we act like the wicked tenants what do they do they rob from him they take from him and they do not submit to the authority that he has over them what would happen if you stopped paying your rent how many of you rent right what would happen if you just decided one day you're like i don't want to pay my rent anymore it's not going to go good for you is it Like, we rent this building. We don't own this building, but next year we will own a new building, praise the Lord. Next year we will. But for now, we rent. What would happen if, say, we just decided not to pay our rent anymore? Is that going to go good for us? No, 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 no. The landlord's going to send a friend to come knock on the door. Hey, Redemption Church, you owe me some money. And what would happen if we slap that guy around a little bit? (laughs) May want to, but you can't. What would happen if we rejected him? What would happen if we say, nope, not paying our money? We're not paying anymore. We're going to enjoy this great building. You're going to enjoy your home. You're going to drive your car, but you're not going to pay your car note anymore. What's going to happen? It's going to come and get repossessed. Right, somebody's going to foreclose on your home. They're going to take what is yours, and they're going to remove it, and you might end up going to prison. That's what happens. And so here's what the tenants do. They begin to rob from God in his goodness, They begin to take from God, and they refuse to surrender to the authority and the love and grace that God has over their life, and they reject him. So he sends a servant. Who's the servants? Well, the servants would actually be the prophets of the Old Testament. All right, all of this has symbolic language for the people of Israel. They would understand everything in this. The vineyard, they would totally get this. And here's the reason why. Because do you know what the national symbol of Israel was? The vineyard. They would have got this. Do you know what? Today we have the stars and stripes with the bald eagle. Like you see that? You're like, proud to be an American. Right? That's, that's what we would say, right? But for them, it was a cluster of grapes. And when you look over the temple where Jesus is preaching, there would be a gilded gold cluster of grapes upon every entrance to get into the temple. And so where's Jesus teaching at? In the temple. And as he's telling the story about the vineyard, they would have clicked and clued in because they would have seen a giant cluster of grapes right there. We are the tenants of the vineyard of God. And actually, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter five, where it says this, let me sing for my beloved, my love song. God loves us. It's a love song, but it's also a lament because his love has turned their back on him. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, and on the fertile hill, he dug and he cleared the stones. He planted with the choice of vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out wine vat and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. God has given us everything we need to enjoy a life of flourishing and of faithfulness and fruitfulness. And what do we get in return? Wicked hearts and wild grapes. And so God, he sends servants to come and warn us. He sends his prophets, priests, And godly kings and judges to give us every chance, every moment, every opportunity to turn from our sins and from our wicked ways and to pray and to be forgiven and to bring healing into our lives. He gives us every moment, every opportunity, and every chance. In fact, here's what Solomon says after a dream in 1 Chronicles seven fourteen. When God comes to him, this is what he says. If my people who are called by my name, if they would humble themselves and they would pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Do you know what the context of this verse is? I'll give you a clue. It's not talking about the presidential election. <laughs> It's not talking even about America. Do you know what the context of this verse is? Solomon dedicating the temple in 1st 2nd Chronicles. And where is Jesus at? in the temple. Solomon had a prophetic declaration, word from the Lord a thousand years earlier about this very moment. If my people would humble themselves, repent and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and I will heal their land and forgive their sins. God sent servant after servant and prophet after prophet. This is the story of the Old Testament. God says, hey, I want you to go tell my people there's still hope for them, there's still chance for them, that I'm willing to forgive them, have them turn from their sins, repent and believe and trust in me. I want relationship with you. I'm gonna forgive you. I'm giving you every chance for you to turn and to trust in me because I'm good, I'm gracious. Just believe in me. And what do the people do? No, no. They reject him they rebel against him they deny him and they even murdered the prophets that god sent to them it did not go well for the prophets okay today in charismatic churches people are like i want the gift of prophecy right in the old testament you did not want the gift of prophecy (laughs) nobody volunteered to be a prophet they had to be called because nobody volunteered. It did not go well for them. Whenever God called Isaiah, you know what Isaiah's first words were? God was like, Isaiah, I want you to be a prophet. You know what Isaiah said? How long? <laughs> How long, oh Lord? Like Jeremiah. Have you heard the book of Jeremiah? Okay, Jeremiah was a prophet. They asked him, what was the, what was the worst day of your life? And he says, the day that I was born. <laughs> know it's bad when the worst day was the first day of your life. It's all downhill from there, right? I mean, he wrote a book called Lamentations. Go home and read it, okay? I mean, Lamentations is basically like if you were to find your sister's eighth grade journal, and it's all just emo poetry. That's what Lamentations is. It's just emo poetry. He's been listened to the cure. He wears all black and smokes clothes. Like, that's it. That's Lamentations. It's it's incredibly sad and lamentful because that's the life of the prophet it did not go good for them in fact here's actually some of the deaths of the prophets Hosea was drawn to pieces torn into 12 pieces Joel and Amos were bludgeoned to death had their skulls bashed in and then Zechariah was murdered on the foot of the temple and the wicked priest took his blood and sprinkled it over the holy of holies and which this is actually what caused the manifestation of the spirit to leave the temple It did not go well for them, but I want you to see something. God sent them servant after servant after servant after servant, giving them every moment, every chance, and every opportunity. And then the last thing he does is this he decides, I'm going to send them my son. Surely they will listen to my son. Surely they will believe my son. And for three years, what does the son do? He loves them. He cares for them. He heals them. He blesses them. He speaks life over everybody he comes across. And what did they do to his son? They killed him. Who's the son? It's Jesus. They killed him. They murdered him. What then is the owner of the vineyard going to do when he finds out that his beloved son has been murdered? Here's what it says. He will come and he will destroy the tenants. I want you to understand something. God is very patient. God is so patient. How long has this been going on now? Thousands of years. God has given them every moment, every chance, every opportunity to repent and to turn back and to trust him. God is very, very, very patient. But do not ever confuse God's patience for his tolerance of sin. Do not mistake God's patience in your life. Some of you like the wicked tenants. You're thinking, I have gotten away with it. Nothing bad is happening in my life. I go to work. I got a job. I got a family. I got kids. I pay my taxes. I walk my dog. My life is great. What is this? Judgment coming? There is no judgment. I'm getting away with everything. No, friends, you are not getting away with anything. God is patient with you, but he is not tolerant over your sins because it ultimately, it's your sin that murdered his son. He is not tolerant of your sin. You are not getting away with anything. In fact, here's what you're doing. Every time you abuse the common grace of God and you enjoy his goodness and slap him in his face, here's all you're doing. You are storing up wrath for the day of judgments. Every breath that you breathe, every day that you live, every dollar that you spend is good works in front of a holy and just God that do nothing that will add to your salvation. Do not mistake God's patience over your life for his tolerance because one day there will be judgment. One day there will be hell to pay. And right now you are living with a loaded gun up to your head waiting for the day that God pulls the trigger. Life is short. Hell is hot. Forever is a long time. And five minutes after you die you will know exactly how you should have lived. Do not mistake the patience of God for tolerance over sin here's actually what Peter says and I can just imagine Peter writing this in 2nd Peter reflecting back on this moment of the wicked tenants he says this he says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some of you think God is slow he's been talking about judgment for 2,000 years where is this day of judgment coming it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Does it seem like it's gonna come? We live, we die, we drink, and we be merry. No, no, no. God is not slow, as some say. He is slow. But rather, He's gonna make His promise. But He is patient towards you. He is patient. Why? Not wishing that anyone shall perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's given you servant after servant. He's given you opportunity after opportunity. He's given you chance after chance. He is patient with you because he doesn't want this to happen to you. But that all should come and reach repentance. Listen, I talk to people all the time and they say, hell doesn't make sense. I can't believe, I thought God was love. Isn't God love? Hell doesn't make any sense to me. Listen, hell was made for Satan and the demons, but there is room for you too. People say, I don't believe in a God who could send people to hell. I thought God was loving, God was loving. Let me ask you a question. Parents, in the room, you might understand this. Let's say somebody murdered your child. How would you feel? Let's say someone murdered your child. Cold blood. How would you feel? Would you invite them back to your house? Give him a back rub, a little cake, a little tea, have a few drinks, maybe take him on vacation with you. Would you do that? No. Hell makes perfect sense when you start looking at it from the perspective of a loving father instead of a wicked tenant who thinks you deserve everything. Hell makes perfect sense when you see your life through the eyes of a father whose son was murdered. I have two little girls You come after my girls, I will destroy you. And you ask any dad whose daughter is in an abusive relationship, do you love your daughter? Yes. What would you do if you were alone in a room with a guy? I would kill him. See, you understand. Hell makes perfect sense when you begin to take a look at it from the perspective of a father whose son was murdered instead of a wicked tenant who refuses to submit to anybody but yourself. Listen, God doesn't send people to hell. Here's what God sends. God sends servants. God sends people to witness. God sends His own Son. God sends the church. God sends missionaries. God sends the Holy Spirit. God sends your friends. God sends your parents or grandparents. God sends someone in your life. I don't know why you're here. Maybe it's because God sent someone in your life to invite you here. God sends you every moment and every chance and every opportunity. That's what God sends. God sends you servants and friends. God sends you his only begotten son that he loves more than anything else in the world. And if you reject him, that's your fault. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves If you end up in hell, that's nobody's fault but your own because you rejected the Son of God. That's on you. You can't point to other people in your life. You can't point to the church that you grew up in. You can't point to the circumstances that you come from. You can't point to your family of origin or the trauma in your childhood. You can't point to any of those things. You have to be honest and recognize within yourself. God has sent you moment after moment, chance after chance, and opportunity after opportunity. And if you end up in hell, that's on you. Because actually, here's here's what John 3.16 says, the Sunday school verse. Let's bring it back to Sunday school. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You know God loves you? You know God is kind towards you? You know God loves the vineyard and the world? For God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. God doesn't want you to perish. God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want you to spend eternity separated from him forever. No, God wants you to have what? Eternal life with him in relationship and love and goodness. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but rather in order that the world or the vineyard in this story might be saved through him. That's what God wants. God doesn't want to show up and kill everybody. No. God sent his son so that anyone who believes in him might be saved. And the religious leader, staring right in his face, rejected him. Do you know who one of those servants that Jesus sent was? John the Baptist. He was the last in line of the prophets that revealed the Messiah. And they rejected John. And now they're rejecting Jesus. Some of you grew up in church. You know all the stories. You've had every chance. You've had every moment. you had every servant in your life. And you still reject him. And God has sent you here one more time to hear this message, to turn, to trust him, and to enjoy his goodness in your life. Which leads us, lastly, or thirdly, to the interpretation. Have you not read this scripture? Have you not read it? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes and they were seeking for a way to arrest him because they perceived that they told the parable against him but they left him and they went away. The conflict here is about authority. Do you believe that Jesus has authority over your life? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? That Jesus does the things that he said he'll do? It's a, it's a question all about authority. See, the religious leaders, they hated the authority that Jesus had. The tenets in the story, they hated the authority that the owner had over their life. And now here's what we see. The builder have rejected the cornerstone and everything falls apart without surrendering under the authority of the lordship of Jesus in your life. Does Jesus have authority over your life? For many people, he doesn't. For many people... They live their life doing what they want, when they want, however they want, without even a second thought or guess about the Lordship of Jesus. Does Jesus have authority in your home? The way you raise your kids, the way you love your spouse. Does Jesus have authority at your job? As you work and you serve the people around you. Does Jesus have authority throughout your week, not just on Sunday, but throughout your week? Does Jesus have authority over your life? What right does Jesus have in your life? Does Jesus have authority? You need to get honest with yourself. You need to really consider and think about this. What authority does Jesus have in your life? Because at the end of the day, there will be a time where you'll stand before God and you will give an account. We will all have to give an account for our lives. We'll all have to stand before him on that day. And the only question that's going to matter on that day is this. What did you do with my son? What did you do with my beloved son? And on that day, friends, can I tell you, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. It doesn't matter what reason or excuse you have It doesn't matter where you work or what your GPA is. It doesn't matter how many overtime shifts you pulled. It doesn't matter what YouTube video you watched. It doesn't matter who you follow on social media or how many friends you have on Facebook. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is this. What did you do with God's only son? You have two choices. You can either accept him or you can reject him. But you cannot be indifferent towards him. There is no middle ground. There is no indifference towards Jesus. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's Lord or he's not. Either he is the authority in your life or you are. Where does his authority come from? It comes from heaven. Where does your authority come from? It comes from yourself. And in the end, you know, and I know that that is not enough to bring any lasting change in your life. The builder have rejected the cornerstone. What are you gonna do? Will you accept him and all of his love and kindness or will you reject him? But you cannot be indifferent towards him. This is why this story is so important for so many of us who grow up in the church. Maybe your Sunday school st- Teachers should have told you this story <laughs> because so many of us have grown up in the church and we know the stories and we're so familiar with him but yet we don't truly know him at all and maybe we should have told this to our kids because this is my story I grew up in the church I had a grandma who prayed for me every single day I went to a good church. They had a good children's ministry. In fact, I was the Bible bowl trivia champion in third grade. (laughs) And you know what happened when I was a teenager? I did the exact same thing that the religious leaders do in verse 12. I left him, and I went away. I turned my back on him. I rejected him. And all he ever did was love me. And all he did was care for me. And you know what? He never gave up on me either. He kept sending servant after servant into my life to tell me the good news that Jesus still forgives. He sent my grandma, who always prayed for me, even though I told her not to. She kept praying for me anyway. He sent friends in my life to tell me about the gospel, to invite me to church until eventually he sent a servant in my life named Ashley. She became a Christian before me. And she told me she wanted me to go to church with her. And I don't know what happened, but I walked through those doors and my heart flipped from being a wicked tenant to a worshiping servant of God. And my life has never been the same since. This is my story, and I'm willing to bet that this is your story too. And God brought you here today because there is one more chance. There is one more moment. You got one more opportunity today. And you don't know when the owner's going to show up. You're not guaranteed anything in this life. You could live for another 30 years, or you could die today. That's just the facts of reality. Nobody knows when their time is up. Nobody is born with an expiration date on you. And the owner of the vineyard, he could come today. He could come tomorrow. But I do know this. We are one hour closer now than we were when I started this sermon. You never know when he's going to come and when the owner's going to show up. You can accept him or you can reject him, but there is no indifference towards him. You must make a decision. Who has the authority in your life? Which finally leads us to the implications. The implications of this are massive. And here's the implication. Write this down as the final note. I want you to have it. I'm going to leave it with you today. Is that the decisions you make determine your identity and your destiny. That your life is a result of your choices. And the decisions you make determine your identity and your destiny. For those of you who are here today and you're a Christian, can I give you some good news today? You are no longer a wicked tenant. That is not your identity. No. If you're in Christ, here's your new identity you become the faithful servants that God sends to others. That's who you are. You're God's friend. You're the faithful servant that he sends to help and serve others. Listen, for those of you who are Christians, this should put a heavy burden of evangelism and witnessing in your life because we all know people that we love who do not know and love Jesus. And eternity is at stake, friends. You are a faithful servant of God now. That's your identity. That's who God sees you as. And God is sending you out to go and reach and share and give hope to the world around you. You're a faithful servant of God and here's your destiny, eternal life with him forever. That's good news. So if you're a Christian here and you're listening to this message and you have condemnation weighing on your heart, let me just remove that because God doesn't see you as a wicked tenant. You become his servant that he is blessing through you the vineyard that we live in. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, can I just tell you the reason you're here is because God sent a servant in your life? That's why you're here. I don't know why you're here, how you got here, but you're here for a reason. And I know this isn't the sermon that you wanted to hear, the God will destroy everyone's sermon. But this is the sermon that we need to know. Because Eternity is at stake. I want you to understand that God has the ability to change your identity and your destiny from wicked tenants to faithful servants and from separated from Him forever to with Him in glory forever. But you have to make a decision. And the decisions you make make the life that you live. And the decisions you make Determine both your identity and your destiny. So, the only thing and the only question that is left is this. Verse 29, it says, Jesus asks a question, and then he wants you to know this How will you answer him? Jesus says, Answer me. I beg you I plead with you if you have not made a decision to follow Jesus and to come home and to give your life to him don't wait don't wait I'm begging you as a dead man preaching to dying men and women do not walk away receive his grace today Give him an answer. Give him an answer. Say, yes, I will follow you. Or say, no, and walk away. But he will still love you, and he will still pursue after you, and he will send servants and moments and opportunities until that last day. But you're here today because it's not too late. Make a decision today.